0: Isn't that an amazing day to think about when all will cry out hallelujah in his presence. And I'm so excited that uh, tonight and for the next three Thursdays, we're going to be taking, at the book, uh, taking a look at the book of the Bible that most clearly reveals the, uh, that day and that time and the culmination of our hope. We always have reason to cry out hallelujah, but to think about the fullness of it is really going to be amazing And uh, even having a proper perspective on that time doesn't make all those circumstances of this life completely better, but it does shrink them to a different size. And so I hope that these next few weeks are a a huge encouragement to us. All right, a a few things before I pray uh, and bring our speaker up, a few things uh, maybe that would be helpful to know about uh, the gentleman that we're gonna be hearing from tonight in the next few Thursdays. First uh, is pronunciation. The, his first name is pretty easy. It's, it's Mark. Um, the last name is confusing for most people. I know it looks like Saucy. It smells like Saucy, probably. It's pronounced Saucy, not Saucy. Mark Saucy is his name. Uh, so if anybody is still saying Mark Saucy in three weeks or so, uh, there we will have grounds for church discipline on you. Okay? His, his no, just kidding. His uh, last name is Mark Saucy. A couple things about Mark, just in terms of hobbies. For those of you who like bike riding, you will have much in common with Mark. I'm convinced he probably rides more miles in any given month than I drive, uh, whether it's road biking or mountain biking. He is also a a baseball fan, uh, a diehard Angel fan, which means he has a robust theology of pain and suffering. So uh, (laughs) he, he does like baseball, we have that in common. Mark uh, and his family were missionaries in Ukraine for 13 years with the same organization that Jill and I were with and he taught theology there at Kiev's uh, seminary and they came back in 2007 uh, due to his wife's illness and since then he has been teaching theology at Talbot School of Theology which is the grad school at Biola continuing the really the legacy of his father who taught for over 50 years at, uh, at Talbot, and whose name really is synonymous with theology at Biola and Talbot, Denmark, Markets to continue in that same stream. And uh, I'm privileged to count him as, as not only a, a, a teacher, professor, but a friend, and a guy who has had a profound impact on my life, so if you're wondering why he turned out the way I did, in part it's because of him, so you can blame him for that. Uh, But uh, a very good friend who has really helped to shape my heart, and I'm profoundly grateful for him. So before I call him up, let me pray for our evening, and then Mark will come up and uh, lead us into this first week. So Father, we are thankful that you are the God who speaks, and oh, Lord, do we look forward to the day when we will cry out hallelujah with the saints from every tribe and tongue and language and people in your presence, freed from this struggle of sin and death. And I do pray that you would encourage our hearts in grace and in truth tonight and over these next few weeks. as we dive into this book of Revelation that you would speak powerfully and encourage us in the way that this book is designed to do. So we thank you for this opportunity. Give us ears to hear and fill Mark, I pray with words of grace and truth and wisdom. In Jesus name, amen. Please welcome Mark Sosi.
1: <laughs> well, it is a privilege for me to be here. It's, a, it's fun every time I get to show up, and I've been here a few times already. And, uh, yeah, it's a working with Rob and knowing Brian and Jill, and uh, more of you is just uh, a slice of heaven. And that's where Revelation takes us. It takes us that far. It takes us all the way to the end here. And. Uh, I don't know about you but uh, for me uh, will these guys you guys are going you're good at reading my mind telepathy of what should be showing up there okay put the first uh, screen up there revelation for me has been kind of a scary book I don't know if that's uh, the way it is for you it seems so far away from us as far as you know Symbols, strange beasts, and uh, doing strange things. It's got a very, uh, you know, judgment poured out, seals, trumpets, and bulls. And then you get to, uh, you know, how Jesus, the, the Whore of Babylon, there in Revelation 17 and 18. And then Jesus comes back and sets things all in order in 19. And then the goodies happen after 20, Revelation 21 and 22 the the blessed hope, our our destiny, our home, uh, what we're what we're longing for and uh, preparing. But you know, for me, Revelation was one of the last books that I got into because it would seemed so distant and so so different. And uh, we're in good company. All right, you see, John Calvin is he up there? There he is. Uh, he's very good, John Calvin. You know, the great reformer. Now, there's a lot of reasons. Maybe he just didn't finish; it was last on his list, okay, before he died. But uh, or maybe he was, uh, you know, didn't think he had the tools to tackle this one either. So, if you're afraid of Revelation, or if you, that's last on your list, John Calvin's uh, your guy too. Revelation has a different uh, response in other groups too. Go to the next one, please. when I was in Ukraine, I studied uh, Russian at Kiev Kiev State University, which was the red building and that's where all the radicals uh, brewed Bolshevism in the day. And so I'm sitting in there and I'm I'm trying to learn my Russian grammar, but I get distracted a little bit and I see that uh, Friedrich Engels wrote an essay of the Marx-Engels crowd. Uh, He wrote an essay on Revelation. And so I'm reading this in Russian, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, they uh, had a mixed, they had a love affair with uh, Revelation because of what? Utopia. You can get utopia out of that. Uh, the, the end, but they also didn't like it because uh, the utopia that they were creating, you know, with the new man and the new world uh, in Revelation gets all burned up. And so that's kind of, they didn't love it for that part. Uh, they actually Marxists were very keen on Jesus as a preacher of the kingdom because he was a preacher of utopia. And, of course, they were twisting and reading things of the kingdom selectively about that. But Marxism, yeah, has an interesting history with the book of Revelation, too. Uh, because of its, uh, put the next point up there, because of its, uh, you know, apocalyptic kind of message where it's, it's kind of hard on nature. Okay, you know when the blood, when the water all turns to blood, and you got hailstones, you got locusts consuming everything, and uh, it's uh, it's not green for some people in our day and age, and so they consider Revelation as part of that uh, kind of domineering, kind of exploitation type of mantra that Christians uh, do with the environment. And so they accuse us of saying, "Well, it's all gonna burn. Why care for creation?" And so we are anti-green, and Revelation kind of feeds into that for some people. But finally, here when I got up there, you know, I come from uh, academia, and I put it the academy. That's a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. There's uh, a lot of folks educated beyond their intelligence. Okay, uh, in the academy. But it's common in kind of more skeptical or you could say liberal circles to say that uh, they would say, look, this is a book that was created by the church. It had to meet certain needs of the first century or actually Revelation was written, according to their view, much later than the first century. It is you conservative fundamentalists who think it was written in the first century by the Apostle John. We all know that was a pseudonym, they would say, and they would say that, of course, Jesus, the Jesus who walked the earth never proclaimed that he's coming again or that there's any atonement in that Jesus. That's why they love the Jesus of the Gospel of Judas and the Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas because those Jesuses aren't coming back and those Jesuses didn't die for your sins. They think all of those things are creations of the church. And so Revelation is one of those propaganda pieces of uh, the first century movement of Christianity. And there are many movements like that, okay? But, uh, yeah, it's got a checkered reception. Why don't you take the next slide up there, Okay. But to get to know Revelation, there is something, and this is why it was difficult for me, and maybe why it is for you. You need to know the Old Testament. Particularly, you need to know two parts of the Old Testament. You need to know Daniel's eschatology, and you need to know Psalm 2. And that's why I think... um, you know, revelation is difficult for a lot of folks because it's a barometer of how good we are with the Old Testament. And in most churches, I'm sure it's not true here, most churches we don't talk about the, the Old Testament very much. And in most circles of Christianity, you know, what is the Bible, when you get saved, what are you supposed to read? What are the parts of the Bible that you're offered or that you kind of uh, move to first? For, First, you got saved by reading John, right? Okay, after John, what do you read? If you wanted some Gospels, you want to get more Jesus-y, okay? Yeah, you go to the Gospel, you go to Matthew, but if you want doctrine, Romans, okay, good. You know what the Romans of the Old Testament is? Any guesses? Jill Dagan, theologian of the day. She says Deuteronomy, that's right. The Romans of the Old Testament is Deuteronomy. The doctrinal core of the Old Testament is Deuteronomy. So you read, okay, if you want to read Deuteronomy, that's not on everybody's, you know, short list either. You go to Genesis, okay, but you got to get to the Proverbs, Psalms. That's where your heart is. Worship. That's the, you know, the wisdom of life. James, those kind of books. But, uh, you know, after... What is it? Uh, Lamentations. If you don't, even, if you even get to Lamentations after Lamentations before Matthew, when does that get any airtime? In most folks, that's probably one of the reasons why Revelation is far away to you, if that's the case, because Revelation is steeped in these books of the Old Testament. In the understanding, and you have to understand that Revelation was written to be understood. The first hearers, they understood it. The seven churches, and we're going to meet them. uh, They understood this, but let's take a look at, uh, we don't have time to read all of Daniel right now, but we will read, let's read some things of Psalm 2, and you will see Why it is true Psalm 2 is the superstructure of the book of Revelation. You can hear Revelation unfolding as you read about the nations and God's response to them. It starts off Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. In other words, we don't want them to rule over us. Let us cast away their cords from us. And God now, in verse 4, answers. He who sits in the heavens, you know, this is exactly what's happening in Revelation. God gives an answer to the works of the rebellion of his creatures. Of his creatures, of the kings, of the leaders. God gives an answer. Revelation is the answer. He sits in heavens, verse 4, and he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury. And if everything, anything's about the book of Revelation, it's furious how God answers. But verse 6, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. There's a king at the center of God's answer to the rebellion of men. And he says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord upon Zion, my holy mountain, I'm sorry. I will surely declare the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is where Jesus' sonship language comes. It comes out of Psalm 2. Israel's king was called the son of God. Israel's Messiah was also called God's son off of this passage. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. He is taking back the reward of his sufferings. Revelation is about that. And the very ends of the earth as your possession, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. You can see that uh, Revelation does parallel Psalm 2. And it's interesting, Psalm 2's place in the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, probably Jesus had an ordering of his books a little different than ours. In our Old Testament, the last book is Malachi right in the uh, in the in the in the first century and even Jesus talks about this though the bible was de- the old testament which was their bible was divided into three parts the law the prophets and the writings and the last book of their bible was the last book of the writings and it's not malachi malachi's a prophet in that ordering he's in the second part anyone know Anyone want to go for a second theologian of the day? What's the last book of the writings in that order? You, you got like, what, 39 cho- choices? <laughs> it's Chronicles. Second Chronicles is the last book of the writings. And so the writings, where's the Psalms? Is that the law, the prophets, or the writings, the Psalms? It was in the writings. And uh, most think it was one of the first. If Ruth wasn't the first, it was Psalms. There's different orderings you can find in history. But Psalms, even in its own structure, the first Psalm. What's the first Psalm about? They call Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are called Umbrella Psalms. That means they encompass big portions of Israel's canon. What's the first Psalm about? It's about the blessedness of the person who meditates on Torah, on the law. It's a recasting and it's revisiting, it's umbrelling the first part of the canon, the law. So the last part, the beginning of the writings is connecting you to the previous parts. It's first psalm is referring you back to the law. This is the source of blessedness, is being a law keeper keeping the law. Israel was supposed to put the law in their hearts. They were supposed to have a circumcised heart, but they didn't. And God says, I will do it for you. And there you get some of the advance of a new covenant, where the law is written in, not on tablets outside of you. So the first psalm is about law. The second psalm, why are the nations in an uproar, is about the prophets That's what the prophets are about. They are about God and Israel before the nations, and Israel's God is on display against the gods of the nations. You know, we use the word theocracy. That means rule by God. Okay, and we usually tend to think Israel. In the Bible's worldview, every nation is a theocracy. Every nation. That means there is a spiritual engagement, a spiritual world, spiritual forces, spiritual powers that stand behind nations, every nation. And that was the point of God making his nation. He pulls them out of Egypt. God already had his people there. He had Israelites. He had sons of Abraham. He had children of Abraham, but he didn't have a nation until they were pulled out of the superpower. Why does he do that? Why does he need a nation on the scene is so that he can confront the alien theocracies that have enslaved others. That's what Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to display the civil order, the societal model that God intended for the world. And they were supposed to be that beachhead, that display against the Canaanites and the Assyrians and every other theocracy written with little g gods, demonic. America is a theocracy in the Bible's worldview. There are spirits that empower this culture as there are spirits that empower every culture. Russia, the Russian Federation is a theocracy. So is Germany, so is South Africa, so is South Korea. Every nation in the Bible's worldview is a theocracy. And so Israel's theocracy was to to confront the theocracies run by the little pagans, the enslaving, the demonic, the dehumanizing, the ruinous, destructive gods of the nations. If you want an interesting study sometime, take your concordance and look up gods and nations in the Old Testament. And you will see that God is intent on putting them on display. The God of Israel wants to show that they are blind, that they are dumb, that they have no power. And that's what Israel gives the story. And so Psalm 2, and that's what the prophets were all about. Israel is a nation now. And now they are a nation in the prophets before other nations. And they are displaying the order. David's the king and Solomon and the glory that their kingdom had is what the other nations were supposed to see and supposed to be attracted to. And you do see that in the Old Testament. So Psalm 2 is the recapturing of the second part of Israel's canon. Okay, in the third part, the writings. And it is also that's why we meet the book of Revelation is also engaging the nations, the kings of the earth. Jesus is the king of kings in the book of Revelation. The kings of the earth will bring their, their glory into the new Jerusalem when their conversion has happened in Revelation 22. And so we have, uh, we have to get our Old Testament story going a little bit to get this. Let's go to the next slide, okay? But Revelation is a book that we need. We can't leave it as something scary and on the shelf there. We need this book. Why don't you put the whole thing up there? Uh, I used to think that Revelation was only good for making my prophecy charts, okay? And I'm not saying it's not useful for that. I think it is futuristic, meaning, You don't take revelation as already happened. A good bit of Christendom does take it that way, take most of it. They would say that the tribulation period started at the first century and that they would say that the the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are parallels and they are just circling back and just revisiting the conflicted nature of this age. I think there's a, a better way to look at this. There's lots of uh, interesting, if you want to take a, a general outline of the book of Revelation, I think is in chapter one, verse 19. Let's take a look at that. If you, I think this is convenient. You can break down the whole book from what, and I didn't think of this. I'm, I'm on the shoulders of you know, bigger and better. What does chapter one, verse 19 say? Therefore, write the things which you have seen that's one section. We'll talk about what section it is. The things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Three things. So the things which you have seen, Revelation chapter 1 is John's vision of the exalted Christ. He has seen this, and that's exactly what precedes verse 19. From verses 12 through 18, he sees the one who's talking, and it freaks him out, and we're going to talk about that. So the things you've seen is chapter 1, the things which are, the next part of that, that means the things which are related going on with John's, in John's immediate uh, circumference of knowledge. Meaning, what's going on around him? Revelation was a, a letter written to seven churches. The, you meet the churches in verse 11 and in chapters 2 and 3. And so it was, the, these are the things that are. So it, the things that are goes, it takes you to the end of chapter 3. And then the next verse, part of that verse from 19, and the things that will be after that. And the things that will take place after these things, chapters four and five is kind of a heavenly interlude, and you see majestic glory, you see worship, but in chapter six is when you start to see the unfolding of the sealed book, and the sealed book of judgments that commences and takes you all the way through to the return of Jesus in 19, that's the things, and according to this outline, those are the th- that's this part of the book, the things that are still going to happen, and that are futuristic. So, Revelation, I do think, is talking about future to us. But that's where I left it. Revelation was just where I made my charts, and, you know, and sometimes I got a little excited. Oh, this is being fulfilled right now. You know, and we have a long history of that in conservative evangelicalism of locating history of uh, things that are going on in our presence with uh, things in the Book of Revelation. Is oh, Revelation is being fulfilled. The prophecy clocks at eleven fifty-nine, and it's ticking. <laughs> you know, I remember how Lindsay's saying that the locusts that come out of the pit of Revelation thirteen—that is the the U.S. arsenal's the Apache helicopter. That thing looks like a locust, even, you know? And it stings, okay, like these locusts do. Uh, If you're in that company, uh, you have good company. Because every generation of Christian has thought they saw and they wrote about it the book of Revelation being fulfilled in their day. Every generation. So if you think it's being fulfilled in yours, okay, I hope you're right, but you also have to, to take note that you should get a number and get in line. Everyone has seen Revelation being fulfilled. I, in, in the position that I occupy over at Talbot, I teach eschatology future things, that's the, the doctrine, that's, I'm the eschatologist, I'm, I'm the, not many of us around, okay, these days, but I'm still a dinosaur over there who does this kind of stuff. And so when stuff comes on the, uh, on the radar, it comes to my desk. Blood moons, oh, that was all over, fly, books flying off the shelf three years ago. What's that? And I, it's almost predictable. Every two or three years, there's something that grabs this kind of, grabs us by the heart, the throat. We want this, we go for it. Now that's what I tell my students. If you're, I, my answer is to blood moons, I hope you're right. But I also know everyone in church history had a view like that too. And we've already gone into the 21st century. And I also look at scripture. Why did God tell us about the future? Someone wisely said, God hasn't told us everything about the future, but He has told us enough so that we do not despair. But He has not told us everything so that we don't need Him. That's a good tension that we don't despair. Humans need a story. We need a story. We are story people. That's why God has come to us with a story. He did not drop his revelation, his message to us in the form of a theology textbook. Doctrine of God, first part. Doctrine of scripture, second part. Doctrine of man, sin, salvation. And on we go like our theology texts go. No, he didn't talk to us that way. He brought a story. This is a drama. It moves from creation to a new creation. A sinless, perfect one that was still immature that still needs... It, it, it gets broken, but it's, the, the end is better than even the beginning that it was stu- when it was perfect. It was an immature perfection. It was supposed to grow somewhere. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us where it grows. So we need a story. And, you know, if we don't have a story, God, knows, God made our hearts. He knows our hearts are captured by stories. You know, you look around when Rob's preaching, okay? When Rob's, you know, giving you the good stuff, the doctrine stuff, where are the heads around you? They, they can be kind of wandering around. You're, they're looking down. But when Rob tells you a story, ooh, what happens to the heads? They come up. We're wired for that. God knows it, and so he wants to capture our hearts And he brings a story to do it. Revelation is the end of the story, and it's the story we need. We need a story so bad that if we don't have one, God knows we will invent one. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus says, many will come and say, I'm the Christ, the end is near. That's a story. They're proposing a story. He says, don't follow them. That's one of the things that I wish that my brothers and sisters who get so wrapped up by blood moons and everything. It's in Luke 21. He says, don't follow them. We're told the end for other things in scripture. The end is about what kind of, knowing this is how the story, how should I live now in holiness and impurity? How should I live now in zeal? This is the story of eternal life. This is the best story. Live it. This is a story of your life. This is a story that gives life to everyone else around you. That's why God tells us the story and why we know that part. We know how it ends. You know, every time we have apocalyptic scenarios, you know, whether it's the big one, the earthquake, right? That's going to level California. I heard the latest one Isn't, isn't... Wyoming, Yellowstone, kind of splitting open now. They've got some big fissure over there and that's connected over here somehow. And oh, fear drives you and you get nuts. Or then there's the, I remember the, the Cold War. I'm old enough to remember the Cold War. And doing our little duck and cover drills against the bombs that Russia was aimed at us. I got over there and i was i was one of my first thoughts was this was the superpower we were afraid of okay they have nukes but they can't make their phone system work <laughs> They can't make their trolley bus system work the post office was a nightmare it didn't trickle down to where everyone lived but uh, yeah i lived through all of that and you know everyone who has a, a, a pres- every presidential election we go through this too Everyone has to propose their their peace for the Middle East program. Uh, My version of the story that is here says that there is no peace there till the Prince of Peace shows up. Everything is futile to solve that issue until Jesus comes. And so I know these things, so I'm not despairing, I'm not captured in fear. I can live free. I can live hope-filled, Jesus-centered life. Eschatology is supposed to serve that, not my prophecy charts. They need to find their level at a different place. I'm not saying don't think about those things. There are signs, and there's a good bit of scripture. If you just say, you know, one of the things I have to do in teaching eschatology is talk about why we have to even study eschatology, more and more people just want to say, how does this help me love Jesus? This helps you. Uh, you know how much scripture is devoted to the future? All scripture is inspired, God-breathed and profitable, and instruction, for instruction, reproof, correction, that you may be a perfect person, a c- prepared person. No. You just can't, don't have the luxury of saying, oh, those parts of the Bible aren't important. That's not the right way to come to this either. But you still need to uh, look at the way the Bible talks about the future. And you will see that the future is a motivation for how we live now. And that's what the book of Revelation is. I used to think it was about the prophecy charts and it was that. But, you know, you look up there and you see what John says. This is about endurance. This is about how to live the Christian life. And when you get the pastoral heart of this book, it changes it and it makes it something rich and powerful. It's a book about how to overcome, how to stay faithful. You know how how prominent a theme that is in the Bible, in the New Testament? The book of Hebrews, hold fast the confession. Don't wander. If you have a problem, if we have a problem, that's, that's kind of an age-old problem in the church. And how many books are dedicated to holding fast? Revelation is about that. And Revelation, here you're going to, in this in verse that John has given you, is kind of be my approach to it. You like four weeks, four hours on the book of Revelation. What are you, insane? That's a lot of material. So I'm going to cherry-pick it, And you guys can ask questions about the other stuff. But here's where I'm going in our time together. That are in Jesus. The key, the first step to overcoming in this book structure is that you get a dose of Jesus. That's who shows up in the first chapter. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, the very first words. Now, there's two ways you can take that. It's the revelation about him, and it certainly is revealing things about Jesus. This book will do that. Or you could say it's the revelation that Jesus gives, and that's true too. He's the source of it. When we get to next week, we will look at the the seven churches some. He gives them a report card, and so it is a revelation from him. This book is from him it is also about him. So I'm not an either or kind of person. I think theologians, um, here's a good theological type of, uh, I have two kind of rules. That what is offered with no evidence is denied with no evidence. Okay, that's one of my rules. If someone, you're just speculating. And theologians are full of that. So if you say, such and such is true and you offer no evidence, I can, I can easily say, nuh that's a profound theological answer, by the way. Nuh-uh. No evidence offered with no evidence is taken away with no evidence. Uh, but the second thing is that I forgot my second. Oh, I forgot my second thing. You have those moments. And that was an awkward place to have a moment. It was a building up to the second thing. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. The evidence, well, that was the first thing, okay, we'll come, no, oh, that Jesus is the beginning of how you stay faithful, and that's how this story works, Jesus is the start of our life, here's my second rule, Jesus is the start, I want to get Jesusy, and I, oh, my second rule was avoid either ors. If someone presents you with, it's got to be this or this, I'm usually going to try to say, how's this book work? That's the same way here. Is it either the revelation from Jesus or a revelation about him? I think it can be both in its first words. So we're going to start in our way, in the way we approach with chapter one is today. Because that is the structure of this book of how you stay Faithful. How you prosper and flourish in the Christian life is you get a dose of Jesus and you keep that before you as you move through your day, whatever you face. So that's where we're going today. But the verse also goes, John, your brother, one who shares in you in the tribulation kingdom and the endurance. Uh, We're going to do tribulation and endurance next week. The seven churches, Jesus' message to them and how they speak to us. And then the third week, we're going to do the kingdom in Jesus. The rule, the judge. That's not comfortable language these days. Talk about judging. And there's a lot of folks who don't want to see Jesus as doing payback that's kind of beneath him. Uh, godliness is not about pay. Uh, in the book of Revelation. Those words are used. They are used several times, and they are used in the terms of pay them back double, even, you find. God saying such. He's keeping score. That's one of the ways that Revelation encourages us in our journey. When we suffer for doing what's right, there is, you. life is not about justice now. It isn't, but it will be. Someone is keeping score, and he will pay back. Paul leverages this in Revelation, Romans chapter 12, where he says, vengeance is not yours. That's God's business. Revelation is where you see that, and that's for us as week three in two weeks from now. And then the last one is not here, but where Revelation ends. It's, uh, we're going to talk about heaven, Revelation 21 and 22. And uh, heaven as a place of eternal life. And that's the good stuff. That's what we were made for. That's our home. And I think that's what God's going to say to us. Welcome home when we get there. So we're going to, let's uh, start here. Let's go to the next slide. The total Christ. I've entitled this the total Christ, which is an anglicized version of Martin Luther's words in, in Latin. He calls it the totus Christus, okay? The total Christ, that's who we meet in the first chapter. This is the way to start the journey of faithfulness and enduring that Revelation pastorally wants us to get and wants his churches desperately to need, needs to know. And so he goes, we're gonna approach this in a negative way first. Uh, Before we say what he is, we're gonna say who he is not. Okay, this Jesus of the first chapter. In fact, we we should probably read this Jesus. Uh, Let's take a look at Revelation chapter one, verses 12. This is, I'm gonna call him the uh, scary, shiny Jesus. Okay, the freak John out of his mind, Jesus. He starts in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. Familiar expression? Clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That's who we're talking about. So who are we not talking about? We need to get a dose of, they call it the career of the Logos, okay? Okay. Jesus had a career. Let's go to the first one up there. Uh, who he is not. This is not the Jesus of the Gospels. It's more. Okay. We're not denying that. The career of the Logos has four, four steps. And three of them we are privy to in what we're talking about. The one step that is prior to this Jesus here of Judea and Galilee is the pre-incarnate, and his name wasn't Jesus then, right? What was his name before he took flesh? Word is a good offering. The logos, okay? I think son was his name too, because he had a father then. So, yes, that's, that's the triune, that's the person of the Godhead that, became, that took flesh. He existed forever. That God, that person, what was he related to the other ones? He was the beloved of the Father. How was he related to the Spirit? Well, we can hold that one. I think as we go through the career, we can reflect back. But I think the answer is there's a trinity flow, okay? They had flow. My sons talk about flow in a different way, okay? <laughs> flow is when you got nice hair, long hair, and you, can, you got flow. The trinity has a flow, but it's not their hairstyle. It's a flow from father through son by spirit, It's the Father sends the Son, and the Son, they both send the Spirit. That flow is never reversed in scriptures. Like, you never have the Spirit sending anybody. He's always this end of it. That's why I'm talking about there's an irreparable flow, and the Son fits in that flow even before he's taken on flesh in his Trinitarian perfection. But the Jesus that we're talking about is Jesus it's not Jesus number 2 up there. Judea how was that Jesus related to the spirit? The Jesus of the gospels who hasn't resurrected yet. Who's who's about to suffer and die. His relationship to the spirit is interesting. He's dependent on the spirit. He's a true human being. He's like we are. We're humans, and we're dependent upon the Spirit. I, t- I ask my classes, and I'll ask you, can you give me any miracle of Jesus that was not done by another human being empowered by the Spirit in Scripture? Miracles, works of power, uh, okay, he calms storms. Moses did pretty good stuff with uh, bodies of water too. Moses did it by the Spirit, not by his human power. How about knowing the thoughts? There's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well, the apostles who told Peter that Ananias and Sapphira were up to no good, that they were lying, who told him? The Spirit. I don't think there's any miracle that Jesus does which shows his radical humanity. He's a model for us, that human beings, powered by the Spirit, don't raise the dead. The apostles and prophets could do that by the Spirit. But there's a difference. It's the things Jesus says that this part of his career makes him unique from any human. Mark he can say, your sins are forgiven. And you better not take that up to God. Mark Sosi said, I'm good. That's not going to get you anywhere. When Jesus says it, it means something. That's a God thing. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, his contemporaries understood that. That was a blasphemous statement. Humans don't talk like that. That's arrogance. And you, that's coming right out of the Old Testament. That's how the enemies of Israel, the arrogant say, I am and that's negative for humans to say that, but Jesus says it. So this Jesus, uh, the one who is dependent upon the Spirit, that's not the Jesus here of Revelation. It's not the next Jesus either. Oh, the one up there, yeah. The next phase of his career, phase number three, is the resurrected Jesus. How long does this Jesus this Jesus last? I've already got a different name for this Jesus, right? This is Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus we meet after the resurrection. If you want to, in a resurrection for the disciples was a turning point. They were not sure what to do with Jesus. But when he rose from the dead, that's when he gets his last name, Christ. Just kidding. That's a title, it's not his last name. Jesus in the Gospels is rarely Christ, only at the confession of Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ. Heaven didn't reveal, you did not, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, he says to Peter, but heaven. Christ is what they get, they get this after the resurrection. Take a, take a look at Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He's declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection. woo that's the resurrection was a, what opened their eyes. They understood this is a God-man. This is the God-man, and that's why after the Gospels, rarely do you see Jesus without his title, either Lord or Christ. That shows the development of their own understanding of this moving to this phase. But who do we see here? It's Let's see the next slide. Revelation one's Jesus is a different Jesus than the resurrected Jesus. How do you know? Well, scripture speaks about the resurrection was transitionary phase. Jesus rose from the dead to go somewhere. He didn't rise to say, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm back. I conquered death. No, he rose to go somewhere, and that was to the right hand. And he had to do something there. He had to pour out the Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2. That's the exalted Jesus, and that's different Jesus than the resurrected Jesus. How do I know that? There's another way you can tell. There's one guy in the Bible who saw the last three career Jesuses. It's the author of our book, John. John saw Jesus of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. He saw him. He walked with him. He was his disciple, the beloved. He saw resurrected Jesus, and he spent 40 days in the kingdom of God seminar that Acts 1-3 talks about after the resurrection, 40 days that John saw that Jesus. John sees this Jesus, and what is his response? When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This Jesus freaks him out. And that's why this, and call him scary, shiny Jesus. Okay, this is the exalted Jesus. The resurrected Jesus was still moving to this status. Exalted at the right hand, that's what Philippians and that's what the other passages up there are talking about. So this is the Jesus of the book of Revelation, who ushers in the story, who we have to get a grip on before we can move further in our own journey of enduring and staying the course. And say, yes, this is true, this is worth suffering, this is worth pressing through. This Jesus is what we need a picture of. So let's go to the next one. Who is this Jesus? Okay. The book of Revelation is the book, if you want to understand the Trinity, uh, well, if you want to press into the mystery of the Trinity, maybe we say that, Revelation. All the theologians know that the doctrine of the Trinity is most clearly explained here, and that makes sense. Because God has given us a story. It's not only a story of kingdom, of how the course of events are going. It's also a story where he progressively reveals his own identity. And so the end of the story, you're going to know more about him than the beginning. Genesis is not the place to to really to pull out the Trinity. Revelation is. So let's take a little, little jump into this, just to show you a little bit about the mystery here of how they, part of the doctrine of the Trinity, they call it perichoresis. Or circumincessio, which means how they interdwell and intertwine in each other's works. Let's take a little exercise in that just in this first chapter here. So we start off in verse 4, okay? You have the customary salutations. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, was, and is to come. Who's that? Who is, was, and is to come. Who is it? Well, I heard Jesus, okay, and I heard Father. Well, it's both. But in this verse, it's Father. How do you know that? Because Jesus shows up in verse 5, okay? Oh, the Father talks was, is, and is to come. I thought Jesus was the one who's coming. No, the Father's coming too, okay? The Father speaks here. This person has three tenses, was, is, and is to come. Note that. Just log that away. Then in verse 5 is when you meet Jesus. Okay, From him who was, is, and is to come. And from the seven spirits, there's Holy Spirit. Uh, If you want to question that, uh, we'll give you some time for that. I'm going to run past it right now. And from Jesus. So verse 4 person is not Jesus. Jesus is in verse 5. So the son is in verse 5. It's the father. I thought that Jesus was the one who's coming back. Okay? Go down a little further for seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's Jesus. The father never was pierced. The father never took took flesh. The father never died. Though Acts 20, 28 has a very interesting passage. It says, God bought the church with his own blood. God has blood. Well, if he takes on flesh, he does. So the Bible just puts these things mysteriously together, and it kind of says, deal with it. Okay? You're getting some of that here. Look at verse 8. Go on. Uh, who, uh, and all the tribes, verse 7, and all the tribes uh, of earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is that? Is it the Father? Are you sure? Mine says it's a red letter. That means somebody thinks it's the second person. I think you're right, though. I think it's the Father who talks that way. We've already been introduced to someone who finishes this verse, verse 8, who is and was and is to come. That ver- person is in verse 4 who talks that way. So that's, I think the Father is speaking this way, the Almighty. Jesus has a different name in the book of Revelation, and it's not uh, Almighty and Lord God. So go down to, um, so you have some interesting things going there. Look at 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. We already know this is the exalted, scary, shiny Jesus, exalted Christ, second person. Dead man, he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am first and last. Well, isn't that what alpha and omega means in different language? See, the Father is Alpha and Omega, and He's first and last. Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So it's another way of saying first and last. So this Jesus is talking, He's claiming the Father's kind of territory. What else does this Jesus talk about? First and last, the Living One was dead, and I am alive forevermore. He has three tenses too. The Living One is His present tense. I was dead, is his past, and I am alive forevermore, is future. So he has three tenses also. He also has almighty power when it's mentioning the keys of death and Hades. When the other one, up in verse 8, says, I am the Lord God, the almighty. There's parallels going there. So they talk the same way, okay? There's more we can go on this in Trinity, but for the sake of time, I need to give you some time for questions. Let's move on a little bit here. Let's go to the next one. No, oh, did we do first and last? One more thing about first and last. Uh, first and last, why is that an idiom for God? Alpha and omega, first and last. Say what? How, does, how do I get infinity out of that? First and last, I kind of have the bookends. Infinity would seem to press on to that, I get that. Okay, it's the idea of what's it, what it bounds. In the alphabet, you have every letter that, that is possible in your language. In Greek, it's the beginning and the end. The idea is that every idea is formed with all the words and all the parts of everything in between. That means everything you can think about and conceive He transcends. That's the idea of infinity, you're right, it is infinity, but it's worked that way. Every thought that you, you know, you think in sentences, the the language of your mind is different from the language of your heart. You think in sentences with words, and words have letters, and everything you can think has a letters. But we also know we have a different reality, the reality of impressions. And feelings where you have difficulty putting it into words. That's the language of your heart. Your heart has a language, and God's word is, He penetrates both. He satisfies the mind, and He also reaches to the heart. And that's why the Spirit is interceding with groanings too deep for words. He's down there at the level where we, we have trouble articulating what's going on, but we know it's real. And so does God, and he's there. So he, it also says he is alive. He is alive. This is a strong theme of the book of Revelation. Conquering death is the power. This is the ultimate power. Death is the, the reaper. Death is the equalizer, not for Jesus. He is alive. That is, that is a huge thing of this Jesus. He's conquered death and is coming. And the next one is he's coming. Now, we've cited Revelation 1-4, that's where the Father says that, but Jesus is coming too in 7 and 8, or verse 8. You know, when I was in, in Russia or in Ukraine, I was amazed at how ubiquitous, how everywhere Lenin was. He was like this little bald head in, pictured in every office, in every school classroom. He was everywhere. And then I heard how they used to talk about him, how the communists talk about him. They said, Lenin Gilles, Lenin Gilles, Lenin Buttigieg, which means Lenin lived, Lenin is alive, and Lenin will live. And I go, that's how I talk about Jesus, for crying out loud. That's how they talk about Lenin. Well, there's one difference between Lenin and Jesus. Lenin is not coming back. See, there's the power of the one who's alive. He is free, even in the the face of death, that no other is. That's the Jesus who commands commands your obedience, that commands your heart, and that loves you. Okay, we need to get to that. Let's go to the next one. He is the Lamb. 34 times. This is the name of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Lamb. But he's an interesting lamb. Put the three points up there. It's a very interesting lamb. Okay, It's a lamb who is vulnerable, who was slain. But it is a lamb who shepherds his people. That's a really interesting picture. The lamb who shepherds. The whole idea is topsy-turvy. Usually it's the lambs who are shepherded. By another, but this lamb shepherds his people, and this lamb is the one who answers his martyrs and says, "Wait, hang on, your vengeance is coming." And they, in Revelation 6, they say, "How long, O Lord? How long?" They're the martyrs who've been killed in injustice and oppression and every other evil thing that goes on in the world. They say, "How long?" He says, wait a little while. The Lamb says, wait a little while longer. Tarry a little longer. Finally, let's go to the next one. The Christ we need. It's very interesting what Jesus, the scary, shiny Jesus does. You got Martin Luther's statement up there that I stole, the totus Christus. Okay? We need the Jesus then. We need the Jesus who walked the earth. We need the scary, shiny Jesus now. We need them both. You see them both. What is Jesus' response, the scary, shiny Jesus, when John falls to his feet like a dead man? He didn't say, He says, Get up! You know, that's what the angels say when people try to worship them. They say, Get up! Jesus doesn't say that. He says, Don't be afraid. And he touches him. He could have just said, Stand up. No, but he touches him. If you want another interesting study, look at the times when Jesus touches people. The Jesus then, the Jesus of the Gospels, when he touched people. Who he touched, whom he touched. He touches people who hadn't been touched because they were unclean, they were lepers, they were pariahs, they were on the edge of society. He touches them. Jesus has, you could say, an offensive holiness. Not meaning it was offending, but it could move into a dangerous place for everybody else. The Pharisees had defensive holiness. They had to protect, they could be defiled. Jesus moves into the unclean and he doesn't get dirty. He heals. And he touches people. He touched people who were bleeding. He touched dead people. He touched, that the law said no. The fair, no, but Jesus touches. And when when you look at the reason why he touches, when you see those episodes, moved with compassion. That's what you see. And that's who the Jesus, the scary, shiny Jesus is, who starts Revelation is for us. He's the scary, almighty one who conquered death, and who will take it out on the kings of the nations, but he is the one who is for his people. And he touches them with compassion. And it's not just, he, he had compassion for everyone. They don't want it. That's one of the interesting things of Revelation. You see what sin does to people. When the judgments are pouring out on, these, on the earth dwellers, what do they do? Do they say, oh, sorry, God. We want you now. No, they say, up yours. They are hardened. That's what sin does. So Jesus, he's open to all, but they don't want it. But he will bring order and justice. So here's the Jesus we need, the Jesus who starts our story, the Jesus then who we see the heart of compassion in God Who reached out to the sinners, the the outcasts, and that's all of us, the broken, and he touched them. He reached into their world and he made them whole. And then we see the Jesus now the Jesus who just didn't suffer and die, just didn't teach us how to take it better. No, we have this one who says all authority has been given to me and we're going to see it worked out now in the book of Revelation. And there's the start of the journey for us. And that, That John is writing, that Jesus is revealing to him of how his people stay the course. Get a good dose of Jesus, who he is. Okay, my time's over. We've got a couple of minutes for questions here before 8 o'clock. Uh, yeah, uh, that's what I say in all of life is theology. Okay, so if you have questions about what we've talked about, fine, but I know that it can, uh, every, every question is a theological question. So, any thoughts or questions? Yes, sir? The lamb. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Lamb is, uh, in scripture, what does the lamb refer to from the other parts? Where do we first meet lambs? We get the Exodus lamb, the, the Paschal, the Patial lamb that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'm not sure, I haven't checked about this, is the Cain and Abel story, is lambs mentioned in that? I don't think so but that might be something good to look at. At least we have the, it's, it's the Passover. It's a reference back to the story, okay? You notice back when I said that it's the triune God of Israel. One of the things that we have a tendency to do is start our story with the New Testament, with Jesus. And you know how we tell the story, the Bible story? Creation, fall, redemption in Jesus and heaven. Well, when you only have those four versions, those four episodes, you're missing two-thirds of the Bible. You don't need two-thirds of the Bible to tell the story that way. Okay? We need to... Uh, that just sounds wrong. I, I can tell God's story without two-thirds of it? Uh, no, there's a, whole, there's a whole reason for that. But to answer to your question, I think it's a reference back to the Old Testament. It's connecting this... There's another way Jesus, look at how Jesus talks about himself in Revelation 22, verse 16. Red read letters, so super inspired, okay? Revelation 22 is about heaven. And then at the end of the book, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. This lamb still, still speaks of his Davidic, lineage That's a human thing. That's an Old Testament thing. So I think you got all kinds of indications of what, we're gonna, what heaven's going to be like. We're going to have, I think, calling him Lamb is meaningless unless there's some memory of this life. Because Lamb is a reference to cross and the sacrifice and the suffering. It's a meaningless name in heaven unless we're going to know something about what happens here, up there calls himself son of David, descendant of David. Well, I wouldn't know that. What that means, that wouldn't have any importance unless I had some memory of what the son of David and that David is the center of the Old Testament and the life of Israel's story and he's, Jesus will sit on the throne of his father David in Luke chapter 1. So, yeah, I think it's connecting. That's my, my long answer to your question. Any other questions? Yes. Jesus in the Gospel says that he was I am the Father of one. Yes. So what I'm wondering here in this revelation thing is if the father and the son are one, then would be all the things that are being mentioned? Well that's the, that, that's the genius of the Trinity and the mystery of it. They all dwell in each other. But the Bible still speaks of them in some distinction, so that we, we, there are prepositions, it's from the Father and back to the Father, it's not, Jesus doesn't have those, pre- the Son doesn't, it's through that goes with Jesus, okay, and by is what goes with the Spirit. So there are some observations you can make about their distinctions, but yes, anytime you talk about the Trinity, you're walking the razor's edge of heresy falling off into there's only one God. Or there's three gods. No, those both are mistakes. You have to hold intention, the oneness. So yes, I think your question is wrestling with that. There's another place that uh, you see their their oneness. Look at Revelation 22. Or actually, you see the three all in one picture. They're all in this verse of 22.1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, I said all three are there, but I only see the words of two. It's the throne. It's a singular, not the throne. So there's only one throne. It's the throne of God and the Lamb. It's kind of a two-seater somehow. I don't know if it's side-by-side or tandem type of thing. Uh, but no, there you get there. It's one throne, but they're so, both occupying it. So where's number three? Where's our spirit? The water. You get this from the gospel. The writer of this apocalypse wrote a gospel. It's called the Gospel of John in chapter 7. Jesus stands up in the last day of the feast. In verse 37, he says, All who are thirsty, come unto me and drink, and from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John makes the commentary in verse 39, and he says, He was speaking of the Spirit, who had not been poured out because he had not yet been glorified, exalted to scary, shiny place. The rivers of water here is a picture of the spirit. And that's one of the things of his the flow. The spirit is, what, is where the, the trinity touches us. The finger of God, the hand of God, the arm of God are all metaphors for the spirit in the Bible. Jesus said so. In Matthew 12, he says, If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, the parallel passage in Luke, Luke 17... If I cast out demons by the finger of God, finger and spirit are synonymous. And it's true in the Old Testament. Where else do you see sp- the finger of God? You know? this, is, well, this isn't the finger, but just on that same thing. If you're saying that it's saying any time he out, then in he right hand on him, that the spirit. I think, uh, well, I think you could theologically put the, yeah, they're never any of them doing anything by themselves. So whenever you see one doing, the others are there. When you got saved, where did the spirit? Who came in? The spirit. Uh, That's that's only part right. They all came in. Jesus in 1423, he says, the Father and I will make our dwelling in you. Ooh, they do that by the spirit. So it's kind of crowded in here. I got me and the three of them, Okay. But yeah, so they dwell, they all move together. But there is an order, like I said, there's a flow when you look at how Scripture presents it. And part of the flow is to look at who is prominent and prominently mentioned. The Father is the originator, the from idea of redemption and reconciliation. The Spirit is the one who touches, is the applicator of that. And the Son is the one who demonstrates And that's why I think, you know, we don't have time to get into, you know, Trinitarian analogies and things like that. But I think the most profound analogy is not steam, water, and ice, three phases. That's modalism. That's a heresy, okay? Uh, It's not bananas. It's not apples. I think it's a speech act. And that still is not a perfect analogy either. But you see this, this is a kind of the way, I think this is the Bible's way of talking about them. And I think it's in Psalm 33. Verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, two of them are there. The Lord, the originator, he has words. There's the Father and the Son, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The Spirit is the breath, is the wind of God. And so I think this kind of speech, the idea of speaking out, you have to put your thoughts into words, and they have to be thrust out by your breath. That's the picture that Scripture gives us of how they act. And you see it also in one last place here, and then I'm going to let you go. It's in Romans. If you want your put your Trinity chops on, all of them are in chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In their distinction, okay. We see two of them in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two of them are there in the Apostle Paul's letters. And writings when you see the word God and there's another person of the Trinity in the verse the word God means the father and you can check that out from how he addresses his epistles he talks about God our father and Jesus Christ so but the rule here is so it's the father's love is demonstrated in Christ so there's two of them it's the father is the source Christ is the demonstrator in verse 5 is you see the Spirit. Because the love of God, meaning, uh, or the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Spirit. So the rule is there's another person of the Trinity. The Father's love is poured into our hearts by the Spirit. So the Spirit is where God touches us most immediately. Don't make him the only one who touches us. All right? Okay, time is up.